Good evening and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. As usual, my name is Michael and co-hosting with me is Phoenix. Today we have two guests. Our first guest is Samuel Atiku. He's not related to Atiku Abubakar in any way. Samuel is a public policy consultant with the International Budget Partnership. Our second guest is Salihu Dasuki Nakande. Salihu is a member of the APC. He was the former APC youth leader in the UK and is also a university lecturer. We'll be discussing three topics today. Firstly, we'll discuss Bola Ahmed Tinubu, the presidential candidate of the All Progressives Congress. We'll discuss his recent trip to Chatham House in London, and we'll discuss the speech that he delivered and all the all the drama that surrounded his appearance. Secondly, we'll discuss the new cash withdrawal limits that have been imposed by the Central Bank of Nigeria. We'll discuss whether we think it's a good idea, bad idea. And finally, we'll discuss news reports that the Nigerian army has been forcing women to have abortions. So we'll go to our first topic, Phoenix. Bola Tinubu, according to his supporters, made a triumphant entry into London to deliver a fantastic speech at Chatham House. Phoenix, were you inspired by Bola Tinubu's speech? Did it get you excited, Phoenix? And why? Why did it get you excited? Hi, Michael, and uh, hi, uh, Atiku and Salihu. Thanks for joining us this week. Hello, listeners. You know, every time you ask me this question, I always say, don't ask me about getting excited. But you know the funny thing? Yes, I was excited. <laughs> I was excited. Excited, of course, to, to, to hear him actually be able to string a few sentences together. So that was, like, that was exciting. But what really, what really drove up my excitement was to see him, you know, tear the Chatham House rules to shreds. I mean, the guy, the guy just blazed an entirely new trail. I mean, it just changed the game entirely, which was exciting. I mean, I was there watching the guy, and I'm like, ah! Tinubu decided to go to Chatham House, where you're supposed to be, you know, sharing your ideas. It's supposed to be a place for intellectual discussion, for you to come and show your intellectual chops. Even... Even Buhari, who we, who we don't put much, who, okay, let me say I, who I don't put much stock in, went to Chatham House and spoke and shared his ideas, two questions, and, and moved on. So, you know, who decides to go to Chatham House, give a speech, and then start sharing his questions to, to other people to answer on his behalf. And that, for me, was mind-blowingly exciting. I mean, it was, like, incredible to see to see this happen, and, and I was just watching, I, I mean, I watched the, the thing after the fact, and of course I've seen people's comments and all of that. I, and I, it's even till now when I think, think about it, I'm like, this guy has, I mean, excuse my, this guy has serious brass words, but I mean, I, you know me, I've said about this, this ticket, I've called it the middle finger ticket. I've said, you know, and I like that he's owning it. That's the thing I like about this, this election season. It's been, it's been super exciting in the sense that people are owning their parts, right? 
I've talked about Atiku and, and the need to, you know, capture the North and he's owning that. Tinubu is owning the fact that he, he needs to, even though he is of the, of the ruling party, he knows he's not popular. He knows his party is not popular. He knows that, I mean, clearly there's, if you do all the permutations, there should, there should be no path to the presidency. So he's decided to play the renegade. And that started even, even as far back as, you know, when during the primaries, when things, things were stacked against him, remember his outburst where the Emilio Kong thing was born. So it's like he's taking, taking that into his campaign and he just doesn't care. He's going to do whatever he wants. And, and we saw it at, at Chatham House. I mean, he, he, just, he just came there and did his own thing. He knew that it would keep him in the, keep him in the news, I guess for him. I mean, as long as he's, he's being talked about, it doesn't matter whether it's negative or not. I mean, that works for him. Because he was, I mean, what did, what did anyone learn of his, I mean, the, the key questions around his candidacy were not answered. Um, the, the key questions around his capability, his, his fitness, both physically and mentally, I mean, he just left more questions because by doing that, you only let people who say you are not capable, and I'm one of them, you know, you just further proved what they were saying. And so for me, it was, it was quite hilarious, but yeah, it, it brought some excitement to, to the campaign. And uh, I mean, I wait to see, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. I mean, it's crazy. The fact that he's even still in the running is, is amazing, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Thank you, Phoenix. Sally who? You've heard what Phoenix has had to say. Phoenix made reference to the fact that Bola Tinebu introduced his own rules at Chatham House, where he was outsourcing questions to members of your party to answer. In your view, Salihu, is, is that the way a candidate should respond? People are asking him questions and then he's passing them on to other people. Does that, ref does that show that Bola Tinebu is capable? Of, of being president, Salihu? Salihu, are you, are you still there? We, we, we can't see, you seem to be on, on mute. Salihu, are you with us? Well, we appear to have lost a connection with Salihu. I'm not quite sure what is going on? Um, okay, we'll go to Samuel and then come back to Salihu. Samuel. Uh, hello. Oh. Can oh, you hear Samuel. me, Michael? Oh, yeah, we oh, can yeah. hear you now. What, what happened? Well, my computer just froze, but it's all right. It's back now. Oh, but did you hear, did you hear my question? Oh, yeah, yeah. I had your question. Um, that was with regards to uh, Phoenix arguing that um, Bola Mechinibut um, changed the... Uh, I don't know the, the rules of Chatham House. Yes, and the question is: is in your view, is is that acceptable that a presidential candidate should be outsourcing questions to his team when people are asking him direct questions, Salihu? 
Yeah, uh, first of all, absolutely, there is no problem with that, um, Gigi. And first of all, I need to ask, I don't know whether Phoenix works in Chatham House to say that Bola Ahmed has changed the rules because at the moment, there is no format on how questions are answered in, in, in Chatham House. So I don't know if uh, Phoenix can signpost me to somewhere on the Chatham House website that says that this is the format in which questions are being asked. And what has he done? He's gone to Chatham House. He has spoken. He has given a brilliant speech on what Ali, he's going to, to be, do. Just to uh, oh, say that. Um, <laughs> Michael, you see the problem? Michael, you see the problem we have with this obedience? They will not allow us to talk. So you we'll called me. Talk. Well, you called me now. Oh, oh, order, order. Oh, carry order. On. All right. Order. No, no, no. Let him ask. He has interrupted me. No, now. no, Let's... no, no. Carry on, Sally. I've, I've, I've lost my. Uh, okay, so I don't know what was I doing. He has, he has given a beautiful um, uh, um, speech of what he wanted to, to to say, in which many of the people like the Phoenix were out there saying he was using the prompter and whatnot. But the key, the, the key aspect is what. Also, what has he done? He has come into that uh, platform again, and he has given his team an opportunity to showcase their what intellectual abilities in terms of what good governance on what they will do if what voted in. So there's no problem with that. I see no issues with that. It's okay. He has just given his team a, an opportunity to tell the world what they will do when they get. So I don't see there's any uh, there's any problem with that. It's like you, uh, Michael, if, if you go somewhere and you ask one of your team members to ask a, a question on your behalf. So what, what, what what's the fuse about that? And you, uh, you can see even with regards to him coming to Chatham House, I'm sure, Michael, you saw the videos out there on social media, the way half of the whole Nigerian community in London came there, buzzing, chanting songs, welcoming the president, uh, the incoming president of Nigeria in 2023. I'm sure Phoenix was there. Maybe he was hiding somewhere. But we will listen to what he wants to say while he was trying to interrupt me. Thank you, Salihu. So let me just ask a follow-up. So you are a university lecturer. So are you telling me that if you asked your student a question or you were interviewing somebody for a job and you asked them a question and instead of them answering the question, they came with a group of people and said, I'm going to ask my uncle outside to answer this question. Would that be acceptable to you, Salihu? Yeah, but now the, 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 the question, the, the problem is, is this a job interview? And if generally, even if the job interview, some people go for job interviews or they, for, as a team. It could be an individual or job interview, but absolutely, this is not an individual job interview. It's a team-based job interview. And he went in there as a leader of the team. And then he, he gave out the questions to, his, to, 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 to members of his team. In the classroom, again, if you ask me in the class, and the way it's been run in the UK, we know that majority of, uh, of, of formative and summative assessments are usually group activities. If I ask the team members what is a problem or, uh, or presentations they made in the classroom, the team leader can what can assign one of the team members to talk about this. So absolutely, there's nothing wrong with that. He did absolutely fine. Thank you, Salihu. I'll, I'll leave the voters and listeners to reach their own conclusions. Before I go to Samuel Phoenix, did you want to respond to Salihu before I go to Samuel? Yeah, I just wanted to point, point out that, I mean, we've heard from Chatham House, um, I don't know whether it was a spokesman or somebody who did say that this is the first time they've ever had this happen. 
So just wanted to clarify for Sally who to understand that this was very, very outside of the norm. You, I mean, even the, even the folks who who's, um, organize these things at Chatternhouse say they were blindsided, they didn't expect it. So I'm sure that they will look, they will look out for that in future. Thank you, Phoenix. Let me go to Samuel. Samuel, with regards to the content of Bolatinubu's speech, he made a few references. He talked a bit about the economy. He said something about social media. He wasn't quite clear what he was getting at, but he seemed to be implying that social media was not necessarily a positive thing for Nigeria. But my general question to you is, in terms of the content of the speech, were there any policy proposals there that you found useful or you thought would, would help to improve the quality of life of Nigerians? Oh, thank you, uh, Michael. Uh, <clears throat> I wish I can then find people to actually apportion or distribute these questions to. Unfortunately, I can't. I'm not sure you <laughs> give me a lot. <laughs> but, but that said, um, I think, yeah, if you look closely at his policies, different, well, I wouldn't say his policies, it's the policies that of the APC, right? Um, in terms of the economic policy, it seems to be leaning towards what you call expansionary fiscal policies. He keep talking about the need uh, to invest in housing without telling us where we find the money. He keep talking about the need to actually expand government services. Uh, why, why the reality on ground is that we have very little room and rigor to expand, I mean, to expand government services. Uh, if you look closely at the uh, manifesto itself, and you try to digest it, virtually every single sentence in that document seems not to be logical. It seems to be aspirational. And it's, there's nothing bad in actually drawing inspiration and saying, oh, this is what will happen. But again, we've seen that before in 2015, I mean, 2015, 2014. Uh, and then the outcome that we have today, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not clear to, I mean, it's very clear to everybody except maybe for some few people that seems to have benefited from, from the government. Um, now, circling back to your question around listening to, uh, to the presidential candidate of the APC, my presumption, and we know what happened in 2014 when uh, people, the APC was actually selling its manifesto. <clears throat> and the first thing the elected, the newly elected president said when he got in was to deny the manifesto altogether and said it was never his agenda. So I see that already happening. <laughs> Maybe that's per adventure. <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'm allowed to use the word God forbid. Um, uh, Tenubu actually gets elected as president. So I'm expecting that maybe the first week he will tell you he never told you ABCD. Those were just his team, Elufai, Fayemi, um, Ayade, right? The, the man with the powerful budget. Those are their pronouncements. Uh, Edu, those are where his pronouncements has no connection to him whatsoever. And that takes us back to the concept of uh, participatory democracy. In participatory democracy, upon which I'll call it the Romans actually did build their uh, democracy, and then later the United States adapted some of those principles, and which some of those principles were adopted, right? Or adapted in Nigeria. The concept is about representation, ability for elected government official 
to take feedback from the people, give them and explain to them why those feedback are useful or not. And then based on that, I mean, I'll call it constant engagement. Uh, we begin to have build trust between citizenry and government. And with that, peace, of course, I'll call it divine peace begins to reign. But fortunately, what we've seen and the trend that we are seeing here is uh, where the APC decided to talk on the people they tend to have impoverished, 133 million people are now living in, I'll call it, are now extremely poor in Nigeria. They don't have access to healthcare services. Uh, they don't have access to food. Their children are malnourished. Because we can look at the multidimensional index and we can circle around it and begin to explain how we came to this. Uh, but that said, uh, if we have a government that processes to have the principle of progress, I mean, they, they call themselves the progressive, but they won't communicate with citizens. Their candidates won't communicate with citizens. Rather, distribute those questions to ABCD. Uh, and those ABCD said, we know the antecedent, they've also failed at their job. So definitely the only, the only, the only hope, how, how would I put it now? What, where is the hope now for the, for the work, for the have-nots and the working poor? I will end by saying that a vote actually for Tinubu is actually an endorsement of authoritarian regime. Uh, that's my conclusion. And I'll end it there. Thank you, Samuel, or Samuel Atiku. Let me just quickly come to Salihu. Salihu, you've heard what Samuel has said. He said a vote for Bola Tinubu will be, an, a, a, will be a, basically a vote for authoritarianism based on his comments on social media and, and the, the characters around him, like Nassim El Rufai, who is known to be on the extreme end of Nigerian politics. How, how do you respond to that, Salihu? Uh, Felix, can you hear me? Yes, we, we can hear you, Salihu. Okay, so you see, when you hear the, the, our friends for the other divide talking like that, you would have you would have assumed that they've already accepted defeat and they are just two wounded voters waiting to accept the final verdict. I completely disagree with him. I completely disagree with him. I mean, uh, with regards to uh, the likes of Nasser Erufai, I mean, what is his argument with, with the likes of Erufai? He's not a Democrat. What is the evidence out there that he's an authoritarian um, uh, um, person? Or the likes of what is he Ayade or the likes of what uh, uh, Betty Edu? I mean, what's the problem with the team? And then with regards to what social media, he hasn't said anything wrong about it but we already know the discussions on social media a lot of people have been using social media um to propagate uh, hate in, in the country so what is he trying to say we need to what use it or the right way is just simple no one is saying they will block social media or no but obviously one once you just mention social media now on the social media space the argument is you, you you're gonna but it's good we we should regulate it we should and for now, even Bala Metineva has told people like that, Samuel and things that she doesn't even listen to social media anymore because she's going to have high BP. There is nothing they do there but than insult people, say, say all kinds of treacherous stuff about individuals. So why shouldn't we ever regulate them? A majority of these people that are posting all kinds of information on these social media are accounts that are anonymous. We don't even know who they are. 
one of the popular one. They are, they are all there. Influencers and most of them are the even one supporting uh, Peter Obi as a candidate. But that's another discussion for another day. So, what the way uh, Samuel has said, I vote for APC uh, Peter Tinibu uh, um, um, is a vote for authoritarian. No, it's it's, it's a vote for participatory democracy. And by God's grace, hopefully uh, Peter Obi will never. Smell the what the 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 perfume in 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 Villa would never allow charlatans take back Nigeria. Thank you, Salihu. I can see Atiku's hand is up. Atiku, do you want to respond to Salihu? Yes, uh, just to quickly say on social media, um, when any time you see a key government official or a political aspirant or a candidate of a party, begin to actually say, oh, the, the best way to actually get things going is actually to close space for interaction. And then the argument has always been, oh, um, some people on social media are using it for negativity. The question is that why can't we also close all highways? Since robbers also, I mean, we should shut down all the old highways. Or we should say, oh, we should do certain things on the highway to prevent robbers from, from robbing on the highways. Or maybe we should shut down heavy bedrooms because certain things also happen in bedrooms of people, right? People rape people in their house. So definitely we should shut it down. Or maybe we should even regulate air because some people breathe in air and then when they get oxidized, they go outside and commit crime. Anytime you see government introducing regulation, it's certainly because they feel uncomfortable. I've not had the presidential candidate of um, the APC talk about online sexual exploitation and abuse. And based on that, they're thinking of how to actually stop children uh, from, of course, from being exploited. And uh, we know what I don't want to, I don't want to dive deeper into, into other things, which goes against some norms and beliefs. But you hardly see that kind of conversation go on. That's one. Two, the whole context of participatory democracy is to have an open conversation to ensure that the voices of the people that typically would not be heard is actually heard. The vulnerable in society, the working poor, they have not, their voices are actually amplified so that their issues can be addressed. The unfortunate truth is that one of the easiest parts through which that can be, that can be amplified it's through the media. And we know in Nigeria, whether you have the traditional media or the social media, the government seems to have coerced the traditional media. And you will see what has happened. NBC, I mean, the Nigerian Broadcasting, what do you call it in a regulator, the regulatory agency? They come at you and they come up with these funny things. The newspaper seems to have been bought over. So now the only challenge is that, oh, since they bought all those two things over, what is now left for the people to challenge the authority and actually voice their opinion about things that are not going on in society is actually social media. Now, social media is big, right? People look at social media and think of Twitter or maybe Facebook or maybe Instagram, but it goes beyond that. You're talking about end-to-end -end, uh, communications. I mean, the encryption to encryption, that's on Signal, um, WhatsApp conversation going on there. So when you see a government official stepping up and saying, you know, we have to regulate everything, the truth is that the intent itself for regulation is not to make society better, but rather to create a space for themselves to continue to foster. And we all know when you create that kind of space for you, it's only to enrich yourself. 
And in conclusion, I mean, not to drag this too long, when you look at the person of Tinubu himself and the atrocities he has committed in Lagos from allowing Agbiru's harass people unnecessarily, from diverting local government revenue and pulling it into state revenue, I mean, into state coffers, and laying claim that he has drawn the idea of the state from going against the trajectory of the constitution. I mean, we can dive deep into those issues. And then using what you call the force of powers, the force of his powers, his agbeiros, to actually torment people in the states. Now he wants to bring that to the national level. I wish you good luck. We'll be here to see, but I hope it never happens. Thank you. Uh, I think, Sally, who is your, is your hand up? Or was that a mistake? No, it wasn't a mistake. My hands were actually <clears throat> up because I wanted to ask Samuel that what has Peter been not done? He's talking about um, Tinebu uh, not raising the IGR or using Agbiros, but we know that Tinebu is one of the most investigated politicians since when he was governor. If, if Obasanjo wanted to hook that man up, he would have, but there was no evidence against him. He's talking about uh, Agbiros, what is happening in Anambra State? What did Peter be? What did they say he did that we knew he didn't do? Should we now talk about the, the, the SAS police officer, that Ikuzu uh, River case? What has Peter Obi not done? He should, someone should go and tell us what Peter Obi has done now. Since he said Tinebo hasn't done anything, he, he, he's, he should now tell us what has Peter Obi, uh, what has he done? We know his stories, his own people have spoken about him. A lot of people don't want to talk about that, that, uh, Peter Obi because they are afraid of what attacks on them in their own region. But the few ones that have spoken have spoken. They've talked about uh, a religious divide against uh, the Pentecostal, the Catholic, and, and, and the Anglican. They've talked about uh, underdevelopment in that uh, country uh, states during his time. There, what have they not said? Some people are even afraid. The one that came out to even talk was the current governor now, because what he has, he has enough protection that will protect himself and his family. But no single individual can come, and that's why the young man has been unable to 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 criticize ESN and IPOB in the in the southeast, jumping from one church to the other. He has taken this campaign to a different level. Samuel, should we go back? Let's go back to the real contextual issues and not bring in uh, um, theory into this discussion, but let's talk about grounded politics on ground. Let's not play around like we don't know what Peter Obi is doing or we're too blind to have the discussion if people want to go down the drill and, and, and castigate Bola Ametinibu. Thank you very much, uh, Salihu. I think the listeners reached their conclusions on, on, on whose, whose version of events to believe. But to the second topic, the Central Bank of Nigeria has introduced new cash withdrawal rules. Uh, Phoenix, could you explain to us in simple terms what exactly has the CBN announced? Because I, there's a, there was a lot of chatter on social media how this would affect people's businesses, but there's a lot of us who didn't even understand what exactly the CBN had announced. So please, could you talk us through this like you're explaining to you're explaining economics 101, Phoenix. Thanks, Michael. Um, <clears throat> so, the, so the central bank has announced um, limits on, on cash uh, withdrawals, um, which is in line with their overall um, drive around a cashless uh, policy and push for digital payments. So if we chart 
how long they've been talking about this. You know, think about the e-Naira that they tried to launch and uh, the redesign of the Naira, which they're, they're using to mop up cash and people should pay money into their accounts. The, the follow-up is therefore, as people pay money in to exchange their currency, they're now setting limits on how much you can withdraw. And the limits, um, the new limits that they've set, because remember, we've always had limits, so this is not new, um, was that uh, the, 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 you now have a 20,000 Naira limit on uh, that you can withdraw from ATMs per day about 20,000 naira, and then in a week, 100,000 naira. Um, and then, of course, uh, what, once, once people pay in money, what it means is that if you have transactions above those limits, you would have to do, you know, go through transfers and online banking and things like that. For businesses, it's meant to be um, half a million naira a week for business customers. So a higher threshold for, for the business customers. And of course, like I said, th this is in line with their uh, Naira redesign thing. We know that effective 31st of January, 2023, the, the current Naira notes um, for, for, I believe, 100 Naira, 200 Naira, and is it 1,000 Naira, I can't remember. Um, or whether it's 200, 500, 1,000. I, I know three, three notes will cease to be legal tender because those are the ones that they're pulling out of circulation. I believe it's, no, sorry, it's 200, 500, 1,000. So they're pulling those out. And by 31st of January, those would no longer be legal tender. So people need to go and pay that into their account and then hope that they can then withdraw the new notes which come into effect on the 16th of December. So next week, they will release the new notes the, the newly redesigned 200, 500, and 1,000 naira notes into uh, to the public. So in the same timeline, as of January, they will now have these limits, which means that as people pay in money, it becomes uh, you know, harder to, to withdraw. Uh, you'll be able to withdraw, but of course, they will now charge you um, processing fees. So uh, if you go if you go above the um, the limit, uh, you will charge a five percent or ten percent um, processing fee per withdrawal. So it becomes more expensive for people to to withdraw money. And what it means is that you now start having to push money through online channels and things like that. Now the challenge that most people have with it, um, for a number of reasons, one is it's the same challenge that that we've discussed here when we first talked about the Naira redesign timeline. The, I mean, typically when, I mean, you, sh you should give people a sufficient lead time um, for the transition to happen when you're, especially when you're changing currency and all of that, they're looking to do this within a space of six weeks. So you're only making the new currency available middle of December and you expect to have <clears throat> this you know, fully exchanged and and the old currency outlawed by end of January, which is a short space of time. Especially in the middle of the festive season, when we know that there's a lot of spending going on and, and, and all of that, but also in the middle of election season, where you know there's a lot of upheaval. So so that 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 doesn't help. 
the the other part of it is how um, this creates a challenge for small businesses for those transactions that are typically cash cash based, and that's where you you bring a slowdown to economic activity because if you really look at Nigeria, a, a significant proportion of economic activity is done by by small businesses, small transactions, uh, typically cash driven and things like that. And so when you have a paucity of cash um, available, you you create a challenge for for those act for those transactions to take place. I think the bigger the bigger issue for me and and we'll and I'm sure we'll discuss this as we speak with our guests is, you know, you're trying to understand what are they trying to solve for that requires this much um, pressure to be put on the system, and will these objectives be met? We, I mean, the, the, I mean, the entire plan of the central bank is based on, you know, you can really see a like for like in terms of the demonetization plan that India had about five, six years ago. And so you can learn from that. You can study that and see, okay, did it work? Did he really meet the objectives that they've called out? You know, they've called out the similar objectives, you know, stopping corruption, inflation, all of those kinds of things. People, I mean, people have, you know, poo-pooed all of their reasoning because some of it just makes no sense. When we look at how much physical cash exists in the Nigerian economy compared to the economic activity that goes on, it's negligible. So clearly it's not you, it's not your Naira cash that is driving the inflation. It's not, it's nowhere near enough. In fact, you're creating more non-cash money that is heating up the, the, um, the, the economic polity. And CBN is a number one culprit for doing that through the underwriting that he has been doing for the federal government. So you're, you're punishing the ordinary people you're not giving enough of a transition time. You're not giving enough of a change management process where you build the right infrastructure, you build the right uh, you know, technology, you make sure that this is working very well. You educate the populace, especially as we know that there's, there's loads of people who are not super educated. And so you know, using bank applications or using all of these things does not really come naturally to a lot of people. So there should be a lot of education. There should be a lot of incentivization rather than, you know, penalties because the way they're trying to drive it is to penalize people and force them to use this new way of working. That never works. What you should be doing is showing people what the benefit for them is and incentivize them to use it. And finally, you need to build, you need time to build trust. People need to be able to trust the system. They need to be able to trust that if they do a transfer or someone does a transfer to them, they'll actually get their money. That's the right way to go about these things. And, and for them to simply want to force this through in the, in the twilight days of this administration, in, in the middle of you know, a festive season, election season, it just makes zero sense. But you know, that's the central bank and government that we've been dealing with for the past seven and a half years. So one should not be surprised really. Thank you, Phoenix. So Samuel, you've, you've heard what Phoenix has had to say 
The question I have is on the politics. There have been a lot of rumors on social media that this policy was politically driven, driven that is an attempt by the APC to somehow restrict access to money before the elections. Do you think there's any merit to these allegations, Samuel? Yeah, in thinking about the merit of the APC government, of course, uh, if we look at it both ways, uh, the policies will typically affect uh, both parties. APC will also, we understand that uh, Tinubu is a money bag. Of course, we all know what he did at last um, election 2019, right? That he brought in a very powerful, massive bullion bank uh, to his uh, property and then typically share money. Uh, we all we, are, we all have uh, the image of that, but thinking through this logically and then trying to align uh, with Phoenix also. If we look closely at Nigeria and we try to look at the telecommunication coverage in the country, we still have massive gaps. There are still a lot of <clears throat> there are still a lot of white spaces. Essentially, even in Abuja, the city I mean, more like a city capital, if you want to put that in context. There are still some places in Abuja that don't have telecommunication coverage. It means that putting a, what do you call it, POS, uh, point of sales and systems in those places will become nearly impossible. And understanding that roughly approximately 70% of business activity in Nigeria happens informally. No, let's look at it clearly. Um, assuming I'm a trader, I sell rice and I have good sales. I've been able to sell two bags of rice today. And then all together, I make about 120,000. But the cost of buying that bag, um, Monday, I go to the market, I'm able to sell, of course, in little, little portions. I sold two bags of rice. So I made a turnover of roughly about uh, 150,000. The truth is that out of that 150,000, I may elect to take the old money to the bank to get protection, so that maybe on Wednesday when I'm going to the market to pick up another two bags of rice, I can easily walk up to the bank, pick it up, and then go and buy from the market. But nowadays it becomes difficult because once you deposit the 150,000 era turnover in the bank, you can only entitled to withdraw 100,000. So by adventure on Wednesday, I withdraw 100,000. I go to the market and I make another sales for more around 50,000. <clears> I need to return to bank on Friday. The central bank typically won't allow me to do that because definitely that's the end. So in terms of where I'm going is that in terms of the business activity of the working poor, the poorest of the poorest, the micro, small, medium scale enterprises, businesses operating in the fringe of society, in most of those rural communities, the central bank in thinking through this policy don't put them into consideration whatsoever. They were neglected. And then if that's the case, and I just like I said, 70% of business activity in Nigeria goes through that channel. Essentially, certainly there's something that is driving it. And we can look at it on the other flip side also, uh, the insecurity issues, uh, Boko Haram and the kidnapping agenda that has been going on all over the country. Uh, the bandits kidnapping people. Most of those transactions are done with cash. So peradventure, the central bank is trying to cut off funding because the more you pay for bandits, the more you pay bandits, 
the truth is that uh, the more they reinforce and then they continue to commit the atrocities. So now it becomes difficult for you to be able to withdraw cash. Essentially, <laughs> and you can't transfer money to bandits. So typically that channel will be shut down. Maybe they are trying to use that to actually slow down uh, the way funds are actually going to these people, uh, maybe in an attempt to end it. We could look at it in another dimension and say this is positive. But my point is, the point I'm just trying to make is that no matter how you try to look at these policies, there are positives and there are negatives. But the communication of the government remains unclear. I think that's where the gap is. Uh, if the government cannot communicate essentially to say, oh, this is what we are looking out for, definitely opens a room for a lot of questions. And that takes us back to your question, Michael. Can this be politically motivated? Yes, we've seen historically when now policies like this come up, chances are that, especially the timing towards the elections and all those things, yeah, people could actually paint it in a whole lot of light. And the truth is not far from, it's not far, I mean, that may not be far from the truth. Understanding that, why, why wouldn't they, have, I mean, if you had implemented this policy maybe years before, maybe months before the election, maybe something like that. So personally, I don't know. I can't say yes, I can't say no, but again, the communication of government has not been so clear. There are positives, there are negatives, and in weighing the balance of both, the government seems to be prioritizing security over the economic well-being. Uh, I'll call it of the working poor and the have-nots, the people working in the uh, informal sector. And that's the way it seems to me if I want to think about it logically. And then the question now, the big question is that what would be the impact of this policy? around September, when most of these businesses begin to fall apart. Yes. No, thank you for this, uh, Samuel. Let me ask Salihu. Salihu, you've heard what Phoenix and Samuel have had to say. They're not very optimistic, or basically they've criticized the, the central bank for introducing this new cash withdrawal uh, policy. Salihu, do you agree with them, or do you think that the CBN was right to do what it had done. I mean, for 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 for, for this kind of um, policy, as I'm sure you are aware, if you look at um, the whole idea of the Nigerian digital economy and trying to at least digitalize even our financial sector, it does make sense. And then we've seen it everywhere that um, there's. It only makes sense for the sake of transparency and obviously with the whole insecurity issues that we're facing in the country in which hard cash is being given to ban in China a lot. So there's also a security aspect to it. In terms of um, also um, the economic well-being, just like Samuel has said, um, I, I mean, if we look at the pros and cons, you see, they are limiting a lot of these withdrawals. He, he needs to look, also look back that if we go back to the villages, the key question is going to be access to POS by those villagers. But again, when you now look at it, how much even do the villagers uh, spend out there deep down in the villages? Do they mean need that to require uh, that required amount of money? So I'm sure if they go in there for one week and they take out the little money there, it's going to take care of their whole what um, their whole needs for that particular time. And then if they want to do the, the withdrawals or their business activities, I'm sure they will have access to POS. So I, I think it's a welcome development. Not much of people have criticized this because it's a, I mean, in every sense, society, everything is going what digitalized. 
when I if you look at the political um, uh, undertone they are giving it, I don't know who it's actually going to favor because you know they used to say that us APC bullion van and bullion and bodylon and whatnot. So at least none that we can, they, there is no hard currency to give out. Then maybe it's going to what favor them if they are looking at a political undertone behind it. So then why don't we just keep it that way? But I think there's a there's a pro the pro the pros outweigh the, the the cons at the moment with regards to the withdrawal limit and obviously and the whole idea when it talks about communication, there's already a vision out there by CBN that we want to go into a, what a cashless society. So is this is this new? It's not new. So it's not that it hasn't been communicated. It's Samuel or Phoenix saying that they never knew that the CBN has been driving for a cashless society. So that's it. So I think it's a welcome development for now. But obviously we have the pros and cons associated with regards to infrastructure. Thank you, Salu. I can see Phoenix's hand is up. I think he wants to respond to something you said. Uh, Phoenix. Uh, absolutely. I, I think Salu is missing the point, and maybe it's intentional. I mean, no, no one is saying don't pursue a cashless society. All we're saying is incentivize rather than penalize people. I, I, I don't understand this idea of criminalizing cash. Even in, even in other economies where, uh, you know, they, they try to, you know, keep tabs on on cash because it, it's it's used by criminal um those with criminal intent um you know but, but what they do is ask for reporting requirements so you're supposed to report if you have you know large sums of of cash being deposited into your account or you are doing transactions in cash Nobody penalizes you and says you must pay 10% of your, your money back to, to, to government because you have cash. What, how, does it, how is it a crime for people to, have to want to access their own money? Why should there be a limit on people being able to access their own money? And then we, we, you set such ridiculous limit, limits. How much is 100,000 naira in today's Nigeria? How far can it go? And we keep, we keep coming back to this conversation around, oh, how much money does the, does the, do the poor have? So it doesn't affect. The only reason why you can say that is because the stated agenda of your party is to impoverish people. Today, we have over 130 million people who are in multidimensional poverty. That, was, that, that, that is a result of the bad policies of the APC. Who then turn around to them making cash handouts to people in the in, in marketplaces and giving ten thousand naira to people? So this is this was the objective to impoverish people and then turn around and say how much do people have to spend for crying out loud? Twenty thousand naira a day, hundred thousand naira a week. That's that's what that's less than that's less than hundred and twenty pounds. That kind you I mean some we live a kind. Does anybody put a, such a limit on your on your personal spending in the, where where you live? Why should anybody have any limit on what they spend? You should have a reporting requirement if it's above a certain limit that yes, that will trigger suspicion. Incentivize people, incentivize, create incentives for people to want to do it. Create the right infrastructure, create the right situation for people to to use, um, you know, digital forms and online payments and all of those kinds of things. 
people go to market. We have daily paid workers. We have people who have, you know, who, who live uh, from one paycheck to the other. And you are saying that to, to enable them be paid, to enable these, uh, you know, the small and medium enterprises who are even keeping people in, in, in work, to enable them run their businesses, all of a sudden they're going to be restricted because somebody has some highfalutin um, cashless society idea, but we know it's not true. And that brings us back to the political conversation because the political conversation is what speaks to the fact that you're forcing this within a six week timeline. You're forcing this within this particular electoral cycle. You're forcing this at a time that the current government is leaving office in less than six months. What is the rush if it is not political? What is the rush? You're going to squeeze cash in the whole economy, but we've seen the candidate, the presidential candidate of the APC, we've seen him in the last ele electoral cycle, have bullion vans carrying cash into his, into his, into his home. So he will have access to money and other people will not. And we're saying that it's not political. Thank you, Phoenix. The debate will carry on, I'm sure, on social media because uh, the jury is still out. But our final topic, which is quite, it's quite a somber one, the, the reports that the Nigerian army engaged in illegal and illegal abortion program. Um, Samuel, let me start with you because obviously you're in the public policy space. Can you talk us through what happened? Why was the army illegally aborting babies? Samuel. Now that's a difficult question, the why question. I, <laughs> I, I'll struggle to actually answer that question. Uh, but I will say that um, the information that came out, of course, uh, we had this investigative um, journalist that discovered that um, almost, I think, approximately 100,000 uh, people, if I'm right, right? That's it, 100,000 people, um, girls, and then, of course, mostly girls, and then, of course, female, they got their babies aborted without consent uh, because they were one way or the other affiliated, right, with Boko Haram fighters. I think that's the argument. And then by doing that, a lot of people, baby, were aborted without recourse to them. To a particular degree, there were lies being told by the military uh, to them that, oh, they are just giving them this medicine to do certain things. They were injected and all those kind of things. And then that sent us back to the medieval eras. The thinking of the Nigerian military. I've always said it, that the, um, the orientation, the way they approach things, the mannerism, the confidence through which they carry out and perpetrate illegality, the drive and even the confidence that they use to actually do that is something that's strange. Nigeria, 20 plus years of democracy, we're thinking that some of the democratic principles should have actually start crubbing in into how they relate with citizens. That said, uh, in terms of public policies, clearly there are big issues here. One, these are people that have been violated by criminals, 
they are living in turmoil. Emotionally, they have been damaged. Some of them were girls when they, their lives were destroyed by these people. Ideally, what you will have done is actually try to begin to take corrective measures. These are survivors of rape. Many of them are survivors of rape. They are survival of child exploitation and abuse. I mean, sexual abuse, child sexual exploitation and abuse. And the interesting thing is that Nigeria is part of the global alliance, right? We call them the We Protect Alliance, especially for the ones online. And then Nigeria is signatory to some of these things that said, oh, you are supposed to protect these people. And there are ways you deal with survivors because there are mental issues involved, there are psychological issues involved, there are normative issues that you have to address and then on and on and on like that. Unfortunately, what we've seen time and time again from killing people, uh, and then cutting away their bodies and lying back that nothing happened, that they were not there. They've done that repeated. They've done it in Lagos in front of cameras, right? And they deny that it did not happen. They have done that in Nabu. They've done that in Kaduna. They killed people, they buried them in mass. They've done it multiple times in Abuja, very close to transcomputing, very close to Ministry of Justice. They've killed a lot of people. And despite the fact that they continue to perpetrate that evil, None of them, not even one, had been prosecuted. And so they take it to another extreme to begin to victimize and then more like put more pressure on this, on our college children, girls that are actually suffering from the turmoil of terror. And that explains the thinking. And that explains a whole lot of things. I remember in, was it in 2016 where I was asking serious questions. Then I was asking serious questions around military, why the military are taking certain actions. Of course, I did get a lot of threats. In fact, they even got the columnist. You can't imagine to actually begin to um, write terrible things about me in the press. And then they took it one step further to begin to stalk me all around because I simply was asking questions around their finances. And I explained how their operations is, covert operations, secretive in nature, terrible, they have no regard for human lives. And then of course they take these things to extremes, they've taken it to the extreme whereby they are now beginning to assert and create more problems for children. And that's where we are in this country. And it's a sad, it's a sad development. I have no word to say it. Reading it actually did bring tears to my eyes that how can we call this a country? How can we call this a military? Uh, that we are funding with taxpayers, right? People are working, People, we just imagine someone walking from Monday to Friday, sometimes Saturday. They wake up as early as um, they wake up as early as 4 a.m. in inefficient this like that Tinubu created. And then before they get to work, it's nine o'clock. Before they get back home, sometimes it's around 1 a.m. People walking like that. And just imagine that, that kind of situation. And then the government takes about 25, 30% of their income as tax to fund some allergies around this military. And then these military people come turn around to use that fund to victimize their children. That's exactly where we are in the country. It's a sad development and it's very, very painful. Thank you, Samuel. Salihu, you are a member of this APC. You are a supporter of the government, supporter of Bola Ahmed Tinubu. Under your party's watch, over 10,000 
illegal abortions are alleged to have taken place. What is your party's defense? Is, is there any justification for this kind of conduct, Salihu? Are you there, Salihu? Salihu, can you, can you hear me? We seem to have uh, lost Salihu again. So let me come to Phoenix and then hopefully Salihu will re-emerge. Phoenix, the question I have is what do you recommend is done? Do you recommend that the officers involved are prosecuted? And who is going to do the prosecuting? Do you think Buhari is going to take these allegations seriously and get to the bottom of it, Phoenix? Absolutely, the officers involved should be prosecuted. Um, and, and we only need to look to the, the people who were in leadership positions and hold them accountable. Now, bear in mind, the report says that this was said to have started in 2013. So you're looking back to even the Jonathan era. Um, last, I would say the last two years of, of Jonathan in office. And then it's carried on over the seven and a half years that Buhari has been in office. So we need to understand the command structure um, within the military over that period and hold those, those people accountable. To your question as to will Buhari do anything about it? No, he won't. We know he won't. I mean, we, we saw him retain his service chiefs for, for six years, even though they were not delivering. And then as soon as they were retired, ostensibly to give them immunity, he made them ambassadors. So will he go back and hold anybody accountable? No. He's just, as far as he's concerned, he's running his, his uh, valedictory, um, you know, um, um, lap to, to leave office. I think there needs to be, but, but this needs to be, and I like that it's coming out now. Maybe that was the plan of Reuters. We, there needs to be enough noise to make it an election issue because it's part of the whole conversation around insecurity that we talk about in Nigeria. There needs to be a situation where, you know, this is made front and center and, and, and the can candidates are asked questions about this report and are asked to definitively tell Nigerians what they would do about it, what they would do to investigate it, and, what they will, and within what time frame, and what they will do to hold accountable people who are found to have enabled this to happen. This is, this is a monstrosity. I mean, and, and it just speaks to the nature of the Nigerian military. It's just, this is not some, you know, it's heartbreaking, but you know, when you look back at some of the things that they've done, you look at the Leki massacre, you look at um, um, the attack on Kalakuta Republic, you look at, you look at the attack on the, on the Shiites. You just, just look back and just see this Nigerian military, especially the army and how they behave with impunity, especially when it, when it comes to civilians. 
You know, and I feel like, you know, when I think about, I was thinking about this report and saying, where, where, do they, where do they get off? Yes, we know that we had a long period of military rule, but it wasn't just the military rule. For me, it's like the, the Civil War did something to our, to our military. You know, the, the, the fact that they were, they were asked to turn their guns on their own and, and to a large extent, I mean, we know what happened in Asaba. So to a large extent, there, there, were, there were civilian casualties. I feel like it broke something in them such that they, they now didn't understand the sacred pact between them and the people they are meant to protect and the country that they are meant to protect. And so they, they, these this actions that they carry out don't seem they, they don't think they don't they don't look at people as human beings and so they, they carry out these actions without a thought as to i mean the humanity that they are destroying i mean yes they said that some people were given a choice and of course i mean under those circumstances people who have made the choice okay i would rather not keep it but to forcefully abort speaks to you not even recognizing the individual as a human being. And that is, that is the problem of our military. And that is something that needs to be corrected, to be reversed. And it's, and it's part of why, you know, our democracy needs to take a different turn. Even, even 25, almost, almost 24 years after we've, you know, come, come had this democratic ex experiment that has been sustained, we know the first eight years was on, under a former military head of state. We know the last seven, so 15 out of the, or 16 out of the, so two thirds would have been under people who had military, strong military credentials. So we have not really broken the mold, which, which we actually started to under, under Jonathan. And for that, he was reviled. Somebody wanted rule of law. Somebody was willing to let other people, you know, live and let leave, but we were not ready. We handed the country back to these monsters. And now we've seen, we see, we hear this kind of news. So we need a clean break where, you know, we, we, we continue this experiment with proper civilians, with proper people who understand and respect the sanctity of life, who respect human beings, who, who, who treat, who can then ensure that the military is reorientated and, and focus on their job of protecting Nigerians rather than harming them. And maybe we might begin to solve our insecurity problems as well, because that's part of it. You know, taking the military out of, out of you know, out of the civilian spaces and really pushing policing to do a lot more of this work. It, it's, it's, it's crazy. But, you know, sorry, I digress, but I'm not expecting Buhari to do anything about it. The military has obviously been denying it, you, you know. So, but I think that this should become a national conversation. And I think that it should be something that the candidates are being asked to comment on and, and you know, make definitive statements to tell us what they will do based on this report. Thank you, Phoenix. Oh, Sally, who is back? So let me come to Sally. Salihu, before we lost connection with you, I was just asking for the past seven to eight years that your party has been in government, these illegal abortions have been taking place under the watch of the president whom you support. 
So do you, well, how, how, how does your party defend this? And what steps are they going to take to make sure illegal abortions are not taking place? Salihu. Uh, yeah, Michael, I mean, with regards to illegal abortions in the country, I think we have policies out there uh, that deals with these issues. Now, I guess the focus on which we're trying to talk about is 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 the is the report on when is, was the last Wednesday by Reuters that said that um, the Nigerian military has been carrying out secret uh, and illegal like abortion program since at least from 2013 with at least i don't know about 10,000 pregnancies um being aborted now you see that's a very very difficult question to ask because this is reuters and the way michael you have put it through is there is evidence out there that it's happening but i guess we should allow the the military do this investigation and currently confirm if these abortions are really um, taking place and if but is there a program for it? Absolutely not. And that's what Reuters are alleging is as if there's a systematic program out there that are forcing people to abort babies without their consent, which uh, just like the, the the head of the military said, uh, Reuters have an ulterior ulterior motive because they've already um they've already made um a conclusion that is happening, but it's it's impossible to happen. There is no way the Nigerian government, in collaboration with the military, will have a program out there to force uh, all the girls that have been faced with that traumatic experience with with Boko Haram to now go into what forced what um, misleading abortion. So I guess we'll allow the military to do the investigation and and then come out with a, an answer to it why i tend to disagree with rotors on that and i would disagree with you michael and i would disagree with samuel and phoenix you say such is happening right now until the investigations come up but obviously we know in every war there's collateral damages there is abuse of power by military people and that country that you can't shy away from from the nigerian context but i guess the military are doing their best at the moment and rather than pull out negativity I think it's rather good we try to encourage them so that they, they can defeat these uh, monsters out here in the Northeast. Sorry, so you're saying despite the evidence of witnesses and the documents presented by Reuters, you are saying the Nigerian military is telling the truth, that there's nothing to this story. And oh, you, uh, you think Reuters have an ulterior motive. That's what you're saying? Yeah. Well, we, we, if you look at the, the report by Rogers quoted by them, it says that there is a systematic program designed and running since 2013 to forcefully make it about common. Common. Who designs this program? When we have uh, uh, policymakers in the country, how do how will a country, a democratic uh, country like Nigeria, force people to abort be, uh, babies? That's where the challenge is. I'm not arguing that when there is war, if there is no abuse of power by the military, absolutely there is. But I agree with a program running since 2013, a systematically designed program to force women that were forcefully married to Boko Haram people to 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 adopt, uh, to abort their babies in a misleading way Dude, that's where i mean I, i'm i'm not i, I just i'm what i'm arguing is i i think we should allow the military do the investigation 
but but the military is not investigating. The, the head of the military has said it's all it's all lies. That well, he he said is is is. I mean, he feels already because the way of the way Reuters came to address the military was it's already happening. They already made their decision, but he said it's there's an ulterior motive, most likely posting negative news. But nevertheless, they will investigate it. So let's allow that happen. So you're implying that Reuters has an agenda against the Nigerian military. Well, oh. why, why, why would that be, Sally? Why, why, why do you think Reuters would pursue a vendetta against the Nigerian army? Well, um, do, do they, well, I'm not saying that generally they have, but for this kind of story to 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 paint Nigerian military in a very negative light, where we're trying to fight the war against Boko Haram, to say that was systematically forcing women to 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 forcefully women to abort babies by actually forcing them without their consent to inject them. I think that's very misleading. I disagree with that story for now until an investigation is done. And then um what about routers? What are their witnesses? I mean they said they had witness how what is the evidence that these are authentic people out there? You see that's where the challenge is but I will wait for the investigation to take place so that I don't stay on one side because this is a very, very sensitive topic to, to discuss. Thank you, Salihu. But our, our time is up, so I must thank you, Salihu. Thank you, Samuel, for taking time out of your busy schedules to be here. Thank you, Phoenix, for co-hosting. Last but not least, I must thank our listeners who have been loyal and giving us helpful feedback. For those of you outside of Nigeria, I'm sure you know it's it's very, very cold. It's freezing. It's freezing here in England, and I'm sure it's freezing in, in Canada and the US and the other locations where you guys are. But until same time next week, I wish you all a fantastic seven days. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Salu, and thanks, Atiku, for joining us this week. Thank you, listeners. Go get your PVCs. That's all that matters. <laughs> Have a great week, everyone. Bye.